To say that the ministry of Jesus was and is fascinating would really be a gross understatement. It is an immense privilege to be able to read about what he did and what he said and how he reacted to various situations in life. Often his actions were surprising. You know that if you've read through the Gospels. And especially the more you understand about the historical cultural context in which he ministered, that even heightens the surprising nature of some of his statements at times and some of his actions. He didn't always do what we might expect he would have done. The text we're going to look at in this message is a case in point. Who would have thought, honestly now, who would have thought that the first miracle of Jesus would be turning water into wine? If we had been asked to guess, we would have probably said that his first miracle would, be, would have been feeding the 5,000 or 20 to 25,000 or, or walking on water or healing a leper, or giving sight to the blind, or raising someone from the dead. But none of those were his first. His first miracle was turning water into wine. And it's recorded for us in John chapter 2. So if you're not already there, let's turn there together. As we jump into John 2, we are actually jumping into the end of a specific story in this gospel record. Now I know it may sound sort of strange to hear me say we're jumping into the end of the story because we're at the beginning of a chapter. So what do I mean by that? Well, the first week of our Lord's public ministry is recorded for us in John 1 verse 19 through chapter 2 verse 11. We have a little bit of an awkward chapter break here because as you study this part of John's gospel, it does seem fairly clear that he is trying to give us the first week of our Lord's public ministry. Let me break it down for you. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 28 cover day 1. Chapter 1, verses 29 through 34 cover day 2. Chapter 1, verses 35 through 42 cover day 3. Chapter 1, verses 43 through 51 cover day 4. Nothing is said about days 5 and 6 because they were travel days. As Jesus left Perea to go northwest to Galilee to be at a wedding feast. And then day 7 is covered in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The first four days of the ministry of Jesus took place in Perea, near the Jordan River, where John the baptizer was carrying out his ministry. And those four days are detailed for us. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 51. After the events of chapter 1, Jesus leaves Perea to go northwest to Galilee. Chapter 1, verse 43 tells us that. It says in chapter 1, verse 43, The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now understand, it would have taken almost two days travel time to make this journey from Perea, which was way down in the southeastern part of the land of Israel, up to Galilee in the northwestern part. So Jesus left Perea with his five new disciples, and they traveled northwest to Galilee, probably to Jesus' home in Nazareth. By the way, John's gospel 
is the only gospel account that tells us anything about these events. None of the other gospel writers tell us anything about the early ministry of Jesus, the first 10 to 12 months. But in the first five chapters of John, we are told about the first approximately year of Jesus' ministry. None of the other gospel writers cover these events or even mention them, only John. In fact, if it were not for John's gospel, we would not know that Jesus' ministry lasted approximately three and a half years. The most you can come up with from the Synoptic Gospels is about two to two and a half years. So Jesus left Perea with his five new disciples, and they traveled to Galilee. When they arrived in Galilee, they were immediately invited to a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, which brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the seventh day of the first week of the public ministry of Jesus. This is the day in which Jesus will perform his first miracle, the changing of water into wine. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture to many, I'm sure. And I'm not going to pretend to offer any incredibly new insights into the text, but maybe there will be some things that you hadn't thought of in a certain angle or in a certain light, and and maybe we'll be able to shed some light on some familiar truths in maybe in a fresh and unique way. But before we jump into the text head first, there are a couple of introductory matters I want us to consider so that we don't miss the point of this miracle. First of all, First of all, I think it's important that we remind ourselves again of the purpose of John's gospel. It's easy to get immersed in this text or any text in John and to miss the big picture. So let's keep in mind the big picture. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says that he purposely recorded certain miracles of Jesus to cause us to believe in Jesus. Or to use the terminology of John 8 and John 10, to cause us to follow Jesus. And John calls these miracles signs. The purpose of a sign, as you well know, is to point us to something, to point people to something. If you are here and you're headed east on the interstate, as you go along, you may see a sign that says, you know, 750 miles to Chicago, and you get closer, 500 miles to Chicago. Signs are pointing away, pointing at something. So for John to use this term, he is trying to get across the point that the miracles of Jesus were signs to point us to Jesus so we will follow him. So the Gospel of John revolves around seven miraculous signs Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. Let me mention the seven. The first one, right here in chapter 2, changing of water into wine. The second one, the healing of the nobleman's son, in chapter 4. Thirdly, the healing of the lame man in chapter 5. And as I mentioned, all of those unique to John's gospel over the span of 10 to 12 months. Then, fourthly, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, which is recorded in all four gospels. The walking on the water in chapter 6, recorded in three of the four. The healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Those are the seven signs John records in his gospel to point us to Jesus so we will follow him. Now the reason why I'm mentioning this and and stressing this and emphasizing this is because I don't want us to get so caught up in the miracle of chapter 2 that we miss the point of the miracle of chapter 2. 
Changing water into wine is an amazing miracle, but it's not an end in itself. The purpose is to cause us to be even more committed to following Jesus than we've ever been. And that's exactly what it accomplished in the lives of those first few disciples, as we'll see a little later. So if that, if that doesn't happen in our lives, if that's not the, the factor or contributing factor in our lives, we've missed the point of considering this miracle. The second issue I want to deal with, and it'll take a little bit more time, but the second issue I want to deal with before actually examining the text is the issue of Jesus making wine for people to drink. This is such a controversial issue. So many people get sidetracked on this issue because they wonder if Jesus actually made wine to cause people to get drunk. I think this is a valid issue and concern to deal with before we examine the text. Drinking has always been a problem with the human race. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. Noah plants a vineyard gets drunk. I mean, you see the results of drunkenness all the way back in the very first book of Scripture. It was in Bible time. It was a problem in Bible times. It's still a problem today. The latest statistics I have, and these aren't super current, show that in America there are close to 30 million alcoholics, 3.3 million of which are teenagers. Over 100 people, over 100 million people in America are drinkers. The most recent statistics I could find indicate that 91% of all adults, 95% of young people ages 18 to 25, and 70% of teenagers 12 to 17 drink. 15% of the people in our nation uh, over 60 have at least four drinks a day. The Alcoholic American reports that one out of eight adults now living in the U.S. will become an alcoholic. Six percent of the nation's high school seniors drink every single day of the year. We are, in many ways, a drunken nation. And now, as you well know, society has tried to soften the accountability and responsibility by saying, well, alcoholism is a disease, as if it's something you catch, something you have no control over. Listen, alcoholism isn't a disease. It's a sin. That doesn't mean that some aren't more susceptible than others, but it still doesn't cancel the accountability and responsibility of each person's choice. Drunkenness is clearly wrong in Scripture. Therefore, it has no place in the life of a Christian. Never should a believer yield the control of his faculties or her faculties to alcohol. To show you this, to reinforce it, look with me at a few passages as part of this introduction. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. Past Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, anyone who calls himself a Christian, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. 
Paul is basically saying that if you fellowship with someone who names the name of Christ and is one of these things, specifically for our purposes here in this message, a drunkard, you are condoning, you are sending the message, it's no big deal, it's okay that you name the name of Christ and you live that way. Then over in chapter 6, he touches on the same thing. Chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice the tense of this verb. And such were some of you. But you were washed... You are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says this is what you used to be. You're not that any longer because you've been transformed. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and transformed by His grace. In Romans 13, 13, Paul said, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. Galatians 5, 21 lists drunkenness as a work of the flesh. 1 Peter 4.3 says, For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and detestable idolatry. Isaiah 5.11 says, Woe unto those who rise up early in the morning so they may follow strong drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The Bible has strong words against drunkenness. It is foolish. To be drunk. Therefore, because it is foolish, the Hebrew book of wisdom speaks against foolishness. Back up with me to Proverbs chapter 20 for just a moment. After the Psalms, of course, is Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Here again, God says a person who becomes drunk, which is what is meant by the phrase led astray here, obviously in context, whoever becomes drunk is foolish. In chapter 23, just a few chapters over to the right, chapter 23, verse 19, Hear, my son, and be wise. Guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Down in verse 29, same chapter. Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long at the wine. Now, hold on to that phrase for just a moment because we're going to talk about it from a New Testament perspective too. Those who linger long at wine. There's a reason why both in the Old and the New Testament that phraseology is used. So lock it in your mind. We'll come back to it. Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? I think you get the idea of how God feels about drunkenness. If you have a problem with drunkenness, God can deliver you. But you have to admit your problem 
You have to admit your sin and genuinely turn to the Lord. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in both, God has strong words against drunkenness. So how do you harmonize that with the fact that in the New Testament times, or the Old Testament for that matter, in biblical times, wine was by far the most common beverage? And if God is so against drunkenness, why did Jesus turn water into wine? Let's consider some historical facts related to this subject. If the drinking in biblical times is used by people as a basis for drinking today, then they must prove that the wine, and we'll talk about wine specifically because that's what John 2 is about, they must prove that the wine consumed in biblical times is the same as today. But the facts do not support that. Let me explain. The two most common words in the Bible used to speak of wine are yayin in Hebrew and oinos in Greek. According to the Jewish encyclopedia, yayin means mixed wine or wine mixed with water. The wine consumed in biblical times was a mixed wine, and the strength of the wine obviously depended on the mixture. Much of the wine in biblical times was unfermented and absolutely non-intoxicating. Let me give you a few quotes that verify this. Professor Samuel Lee of Cambridge University says that yayin or oinos, mixed wine, does not refer only to intoxicating liquor made by fermentation, but more often refers to a thick, unintoxicating syrup or jam produced by boiling to make it storable. Boiling caused evaporation of the liquid. When the liquid was gone, the fermentation capacity was lost and a storable type of paste was left. This was the most common way of storing wine because it was not as bulky as the liquid wine would be. According to Pliny, the Roman historian, this thick syrup, similar to grape jelly, was frequently squeezed out onto bread or dissolved in water in as high as a 20 to 1 ratio to become a drink. Plutarch, in A.D. 60, wrote, quote, Filtered wine neither inflames the brain nor infects the mind and the, and the passions and is much more pleasant to drink, end quote. Aristotle said this, quote, The wine of Arcadia was so thick that it was necessary to scrape it from the skin bottles in which it was stored and dissolve the scrapings in water, end quote. Virgil, in 30 B.C., talked about the kind of wine that was boiled down to the luscious juice and then preserved. Homer, in the ninth book of his Odyssey, tells us that Ulysses took in his boat a goat skin of sweet, black wine, and that when it was drunk, it was diluted with 20 parts of water. Professor Donovan says in the Bible Commentary, page 295, quote, in order to preserve their wines to these ages, the Romans consecrated the grape juice of which they were made by evaporation, either spontaneous in the air or over a fire, so as to render them thick and syrupy. The Mishnah which is the codification of the Jewish law, states that the Jews were in the habit of using boiled wines. W.G. Brown, who traveled extensively in Egypt, Africa, and Asia from A.D. 1792 to 1798, states that, quote, the wines of Syria are mostly prepared by boiling immediately after they are expressed 
from the grape till they are considerably reduced in quantity when they are put into jars or bottles and preserved for use. Caspar Newman, who was a, a doctor, professor of chemistry in Berlin, 1759, said this, quote, It is observable that when sweet juices are boiled down to a thick consistency, they not only do not ferment in that state, but are not easily brought into fermentation, even diluted with water. Dr. A. Russell, in his Natural History of Aleppo, says that this concentrated grape juice is still around today, and it is called dibs, D-I-B-B-S. So the point is simply this. The wine it consumed in biblical times was not necessarily the same as the wine today. Not necessarily. I'm not saying it never was or there are no likenesses. But you can't assume it was always exactly the same. Sometimes it was nothing more than consecrated grape juice with the fermentation and intoxicating property removed. So the point is this. You can't defend drinking wine today on the basis that they drank wine in the Bible unless, unless you can prove you're drinking the same thing they did. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, was any of their wine fermented? And the answer to that is obviously yes. I mean, look at the passages we just read about drunkenness. Obviously, some of it was. When wine wasn't boiled down but simply stored as a liquid, it would ferment. In fact, it would ferment quicker in, they didn't have refrigeration, so it would ferment much quicker than it does today. But according to Robert Stein in Christianity Today, June 20th, 1975, the liquid wine would be mixed with water before it was served. So it was fermented, but it would be mixed with water. In fact, because it fermented so quickly, they didn't mix it with water. Anytime they would serve it, the people would get smashed. They'd be drunk because it was so strong. And according to history, the mixture was anywhere from 3 to 1 to 20 to 1. According to the article by Robert Stein, drinking unmixed wine was unacceptable in the culture, and only barbarians drank it. This is also verified in the book Apostolic Tradition. Now listen closely at this point. The most potent mixture of that day was 3 to 1. The least potent mixture of that day was 20 to 1. If you take the most potent mixture of the day, 3 to 1, then the alcohol content of their wine was around 2.5%, maybe 2 and 3 quarter percent, under 3 not to mention a 5 to 1, 10 to 1, or 20 to 1 mixture. The most potent mixture was about 2.5 to 2 and 3 quarter percent alcohol. Just to put that into perspective, by today's standards, something has to be over 3% alcohol to be classified as an alcoholic beverage. For instance, beer, and of course there's extreme diversity here, it's around 4% alcohol. Wine is about 10% alcohol. Brandy is 15 to 20% alcohol. 80 to 100 proof liquor is 40 to 50% alcohol. Now remember, the highest alcohol level in the wine of that day, in the general population, now people, again, people that wanted to just get drunk and smashed and, you know, just put it in a hot place and let it ferment really quickly, but just for, for the drinking beverage, the beverage that people drink, the highest alcohol level of the wine of the day was under 3%. So the wine they consumed in those days was two options, either completely non-alcoholic, 
or it was sub-alcoholic according to today's standards. That is why, and I encourage you to hold on to this statement in Proverbs about lingering long at wine. That's why 1 Timothy 3.3 says that elders are not to linger long beside wine. It was possible to get drunk, even with that, that you know, uh, diluted wine, it was possible to get drunk, but with such a low alcohol content, it would take a long time. So that's why both in Proverbs here and in 1 Timothy 3, the exhortation is don't linger long beside wine. Drink wine, fine. Don't linger long beside it, you're going to get drunk. So the point I'm trying to make is simply this. When we read in John 2, all that to say this. When we read in John 2 that Jesus turned water into wine, there's no need to panic to think that Jesus made a beverage that was 10% alcoholic that would get people smashed. It was out of the question. It wasn't even the norm of the day. It wasn't the kind of wine that was served in social settings. The, the wine Jesus made was either totally non-alcoholic or like the, the alcoholic wine of the day, which was about 2.5% alcohol. It was like that, except... Except it was better in quality and taste. Now, am I saying that it's wrong to have a glass of wine today? No, I don't believe Scripture says that. No. Am I saying that it's wrong to have a glass of beer with with your pizza? No, I don't believe Scripture says that's wrong. What I am saying is that many people try to equate the wine of today with the wine of the Bible, but many times, most of the times, it is not comparing apples and apples. And the main point that I want to make so that we're not hung up on this is that Jesus did not perform his first miracle to encourage people to get drunk. It's out of the question. Jesus never encouraged people to go against the wisdom of God recorded in Holy Scripture. So with all that long introduction, let's go to John chapter 2 and see about this very first miracle. John chapter 2. John tells us, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Remember that the third day spoken of here in verse 1 is actually the seventh day of the first week in the ministry of Jesus, but but it's called the third day because of the two travel days to get to Galilee. On this day, Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding feast. And this wedding feast took place in Cana of Galilee. Cana was only a few miles from Nazareth, depending on where you were. It's about nine miles, eight miles, something like that. And Nazareth was, as you know, Jesus' hometown. So the first week of Jesus' ministry went like this. Four days down in Perea, near the ministry site of John the Baptizer. While he was there, he gathered five disciples. On the fifth day, Jesus left Perea to go back to Nazareth, his hometown. He arrived there sometime on the sixth day. When he arrived, someone invited him and his companions to a wedding feast on the next day. So Jesus accepts the invitation. And the next day, which was the seventh, Jesus and his men go to this wedding in the nearby town of Cana. Now, the way verse 1 reads, as well as the rest of the passage, indicates that Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
had some kind of role in this wedding feast. It's not specifically stated. She may have been an assistant host. She may have been a relative. This may have been one of her relatives who was hosting this. We don't know for sure, but she was definitely involved with helping in helping with this reception of this wedding feast. And amazingly, Jesus chose this occasion to perform his first miracle. That is really stunning when you stop to think about it. Jesus could have, he could have chosen to perform his first miracle on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. He could have chosen to perform his first miracle on Passover, in Jerusalem, where every male within a certain distance of Jerusalem was required by the law of God to go to Jerusalem. He could have chosen to to perform his first miracle in the temple in Jerusalem at the height of one of the feast days. But he didn't. He chose to honor a wedding feast with his presence and to adorn it with his first miracle. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Jesus chose this happy occasion of joy to be the site of the first expression of his deity. William Barclay put it this way, quote, Jesus was perfectly at home on such an occasion. He was no killjoy. He loved to share in the happy rejoicing of a wedding feast. There are certain religious people who shed gloom wherever they go. They are suspicious of all joy and happiness. To them, religion is a thing of black clothes, the lowered voice, the expulsion of social fellowship. But Jesus never counted it a crime to be happy. End quote. Along this same theme, C.H. Spurgeon said this to his students one day. Quote, An individual who has no geniality about him, that is, no happiness, no no, uh, joy, had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls, not levity and frothiness, but a genial, happy spirit. There are more flies caught with honey than with vinegar, and there will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven in his face than by one who bears Tartarus in his looks. I remember hearing Charles Swindoll say one time, it's okay to be fundamental and evangelical, but just don't look like it. (laughs) I think it's significant that Jesus chose this happy occasion, this occasion of joy, to be the site of his first miracle. And you know the story, verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now listen, it would be very easy for us to just read this and think, oh, it's a problem, you know, a little problem. It's like you've you've all been to something and then they run out of, you know, Gatorade or they run out of, you know, uh, some of the snacks or whatever. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here. Running out of wine at a wedding feast was one of the most embarrassing things that could possibly happen in that society. It meant total social disgrace. So this is a big deal. Therefore, Mary approaches Jesus for help. It's obvious from the way that Jesus responds in verse 4 that Mary wasn't simply informing Jesus of the problem. And it's also obvious that she was doing more than just asking for normal help. She, in, in essence, was saying, Jesus, here's your chance to show who you are. 
This is it. We have a big problem. Major catastrophe. Here's your chance. But Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, Jesus says, It's not time for me to completely proclaim myself as Messiah. My hour has not yet come. Many people have been disturbed by the way Jesus addresses his mother here. He addresses her in most of our translations as woman. That doesn't sound right to us. The problem, however, is with our cultural understanding. This was not a disrespectful term. On the contrary, this term was a respectful address. You might find it interesting to hear that it is the title by which Augustus, the Roman emperor, addressed Cleopatra, the famous Egyptian queen. So this isn't a discourteous way of address. But it is significant that Jesus doesn't use the term mother. It's as if Jesus is trying to emphasize the fact that now that he has begun ministry, now that his public ministry has launched, the normal family relationships are discontinued. We see Jesus state this fact several times in his public ministry. Look at just one example. Go back to Mark chapter 3. Two gospels to the left. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. It says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he, looked, and he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So that seems to be one of the points Jesus was making in John 2, 4, when he said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has yet not yet come. By the way, the phrase, what does your concern have to do with me? That is, that is almost a Greek idiom, so it's really hard to translate to make sense to us. In fact, what is translated here for us, in my opinion, almost expresses the exact opposite of what I think Jesus was really saying. I don't think he was saying, that's your concern and not mine. I think he was actually saying, this is my affair, not yours. In other words, Jesus was saying, I want you to realize... That what I'm about to do is not because you asked me, but because the Father wants me to do it. I have a different, different purpose in mind for what I'm about to do than you have. You want me to reveal myself as Messiah, but my hour has not yet come. So I will do something, but for a different reason than you have in mind. And that's what Jesus was saying. And Mary understood that or at least part of it. And the reason we know that is because she took Jesus' statement in verse 4 as a, yes, I will do something. That's obvious because notice verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. See, she's anticipating Jesus doing something. She caught what he was saying there in verse 4. I will do something. This is my affair, not yours. I'm going to do something, but not for the reason that you have in mind. She was excited. Whatever he says to you, do it. You could, you could put an exclamation point at the end of that. Whatever he says, do it at once. Don't hesitate. Verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone, 
according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Well, if you do the multiplication, if you have these six water pots, depending on which figure you use, if you use 30, then you've got 180 gallons, 20, uh, you know, just do the math. So this is somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. The vast amount involved proves to the skeptics that the wine wasn't just discovered off in the corner somewhere. And you may sort of think, well, that's weird that you would say something like that. But the fact of the matter is, that is how some liberal critics and scholars try to explain away this miracle. It's not that Jesus created wine from water. It's just that he found some that no one knew where it was. It's ridiculous, but that's the type of suggestion that's made. There's no way to misplace 150 gallons of wine. So John wants to make it clear this is a large amount. And then verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Again, notice that detail. It's a detail to counteract the skeptic. The water pots were filled to the brim so that nothing else could be put into them. And then verse 8, And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Notice how simple this is. Jesus doesn't pray over the water. He doesn't touch it. He doesn't speak to it. He doesn't need to. This is not some glorified trick. It's it's a miracle to meet the need of the moment. Jesus was never into tricks. Yesterday's trick is tomorrow's bore. That's what you try to base things on. You always have to get a better trick. This This is simply a miracle of kindness, not a show off act like so many supposed miracles today. The simplicity of this miracle is fabulous. Think about it. Jesus could have gone to Jerusalem for his first miracle and suspended the temple in the air for a week. But he didn't. He turned water into wine to meet a need. And verse 9 tells us, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. By the way, the phrase here in verse 10, well drunk, has nothing to do with being drunk. I think the NIV, more than any of our other English translations, can almost make it sound that way. It's simply a reference to having thirst quenched. The custom, as is stated here, was to put out the best wine first, and after everyone's thirst was quenched, then you put out the inferior stuff. But this wine was definitely the superior. You know, when God does something, he does a quality job. Would to God that we as his people would do the same thing in all our endeavors. Sometimes we offer God the most shoddy effort of service and ministry, and that's a, that's a tragedy. Even in this occasion, Jesus provided the best. And John tells us in verse 11, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This was the first miracle Jesus ever ever performed, and he did it not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, but in Cana of Galilee. He first manifested his glory, not in the temple, but in a home, at a wedding feast. And the miracle accomplished its purpose. It was simply a sign 
to point the disciples to Jesus. And that happened. According to the last phrase in verse 11, his disciples believed in him. The verb form here that's, that's used may imply an increase of faith. If they had already believed in the Lord back in chapter 1 when he first called them, then their commitment to Jesus was increased as a result of this sign. Or this could be saying that back in chapter 1, they began to follow Jesus around to check him out, to kind of see wh- who this guy was. And when they saw this sign, they believed in him as the Messiah. Both are valid options. They truly believed for the first time or their faith was strengthened when they saw this sign. And as I said back at the beginning of the message, hopefully our faith has been strengthened as a result of what we've seen in this story. John opens his gospel just three verses in by saying this. Jesus is the creator God. You remember that? John 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John opens his gospel by saying Jesus is the creator God. And here in chapter 2 he proves it. Jesus created wine from water. Jesus is the creator. And the greatest creation miracle of Jesus is when he takes an unsaved person and makes him or her a new creation, as described in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I hope and pray everyone present here is a new creation. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's good to go back to the start of Jesus' ministry like this, to think through what he did and why he did and how he did what he did. Just to to meditate upon the Lord Jesus is certainly profitable for us. It's beneficial. As I said at the beginning of the message, there, there are many times when he does things differently than what we might expect. We're surprised. We're caught off guard. But that's, that's why it's so good for us just to think upon the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to do that in this great text in John 2. And as we probe it, and of course there's no way we've, we've plummeted the depths of all that it has to say, but may you stir our hearts with the truth of it and really fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus. May our love for him increase, our appreciation for him, our wonder at him be increased as a result of just viewing him, watching him at work once again. Thank you that he is the creator and that in, in our lives, I know I speak for so many gathered here on this occasion, maybe hopefully all, but many, we've seen his creative power in our own lives when he took us dead in trespasses and sin and gave us life and made us new creatures, new creations. We are humbled and grateful as we contemplate that. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.